Well, welcome and good morning to another segment of Church History. And today, uh, we're still in the charismatic movement. Today, I'm going to talk about the Word of Faith movement. Um, how many people here have, have heard the term Word of Faith? Anybody heard the phrase faith message? That's what I heard in the early 70s when I uh, was a new Christian. So... Um, on the screen there, you can see some different word, people, preachers who are typically regarded as word of faith. Um, there's Benny Hinn, there's Joyce, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, and Fred Price, who unfortunately passed away during the COVID epidemic. Um, so word of faith is a movement within charismatic Christianity and it teaches that those who believe in Jesus' death and resurrection have the right to physical health, uh, the idea that our words have power, and that true faith is more than simply mental knowledge. It's a deeply held belief that cannot be shaken. Uh, most people consider that the American preacher Kenneth Hagin more or less founded the Word of Faith movement in the 1960s, but it has its roots in the teachings of a Bible teacher you may have never heard of uh, named E.W. Kenyon. Has anybody here ever heard of E.W. Kenyon? Probably one or two, not even that. Uh, so Essek William Kenyon, born 1867 and died 1948, was a pastor of New Covenant Baptist Church, and he was the founder and president of Bethel Baptist Bible Institute in Spencer, Massachusetts. He, uh, he was born in Hadley, New York, and at age 17, he converted uh, to become a Christian in a Methodist prayer meeting. But in his 20s, he had a crisis of faith and left the church. And then later he returned and he began to attend a Baptist church shortly after he had gotten married. In 1893, Kenyon joined the Free Will Baptists. When you think Free Will Baptists, think Arminian in theology, the idea that man has free will and can freely choose God or not freely choose God. The idea of predestination and election are not in the picture for Free Will Baptists and other free will groups. Uh, so he began to pastor at a small church in Elmira, New York, and in 98. 1898, he opened Bethel Bible Institute in Massachusetts, and that remained in operation until 1923. And it, he was its president for 25 years. So it seems like a you know respectable Baptist, right? But during the period in his youth when he was not attending church, Kenyon had wanted to become an actor and he studied acting at the Emerson School of Oratory in Boston in 1892. Some researchers believe that it was while he was attending Emerson that he came in contact with the New Thought Movement. Now today we would call this New Age thinking, uh, but at that time the New Thought Movement uh, was flourishing in many areas, and especially in New England, because remember, New England previously home to lots of congregational churches, had uh, many of those churches had become Unitarian and really removed from Christianity. And um, again, 
today we would call them new agey. <laughs> At least that's what I would call them. Um, so uh, new thought movement was also prevalent in many parts of the United States in the late uh, 1800s. It was also popular in Europe at this time. So what is the New Thought Movement? Uh, essentially, it's a syncretistic hodgepodge of ideas and theories drawn from many religions and philosophical systems. New Thought was seen by its adherents as succeeding ancient thought, uh, or the accumulated wisdom and philosophy from a variety of origins such as the ancient Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Chinese, Taoist, Vedic, or Vedic, Hindu, and Buddhist cultures and their related belief systems. Some have traced the origins of new thought back to a man named Phineas Quimby, or even as far back as Franz Mesmer, who was one of the first European thinkers to link one's mental state to one's physical condition and it's to Franz Mesmer that we can thank for the word mesmerize. Perhaps you've heard the word mesmerize. We think of it as almost being hypnotized. Um, so Franz Mesmer was a mesmerist or hypnotist, and he was very popular for that. And Phineas Quimby, you know, he was thinking along the same lines, although he was in the United States. So new, new Thought holds that infinite intelligence, or God, is everywhere. Spirit is the totality of real things. True human selfhood is divine. Divine thought is a force for good. Sickness originates in the mind, and right thinking has a healing effect. And in my opinion, this can be more or less summed up, this way of thinking can be summed up with the simple phrase, mind over matter. And if you study ancient Gnosticism, um, you will find they held actually a lot of beliefs in common with the Gnostics. And, and there's this basic idea that spiritual things are the only real things. Things in the material, natural world, well, that's largely an illusion. Um, and this idea that our physical senses, what our physical senses is telling us is really, it's an, an illusion. But what we think or believe is what is really true. So this similarity with Gnosticism or thinking about it in more, you know, what are some current ideas or groups that have similar belief systems. Um, you can also think of Christian science. If any of you are familiar with the, uh, the Christian science groups, they think very much along these lines. If you are sick, it's not real, okay? What's real is what is spiritual. You know, your body has this infirmity, uh, apparently, and if you just engage in the right thought exercises and think, you know, think and believe the right things, you will experience healing physically. Daniel? Uh, does that, did that group ever kind of reverse that process and say, if you're sick, it's because you don't have like... Not so much, well, I mean, some Christian scientists might say, yeah, you know, if, if you're sick, but, but being sick, is, it's not a real thing. It's an illusion. It's not real. 
So you just, get, you just need to get out of this misconception of being sick and think the right thoughts. Um, other people have come up with the idea that if you're sick, it means, you know, if you're sick in your body, it means you're sick in your soul. But Christian scientists don't really believe that. So um, here's a portrait of E.W. Kenyon and also a portrait of Phineas Quimby. And, you know, you can think of Phineas Quimby, imagine, you know, the United States in the uh, 19th century. You can imagine a guy like this loading up a wagon full of, uh, you know, magical <laughs> bottles of snake oil, basically. A snake oil salesman, if that resonates, you know. You can imagine him going from town to town and working his, you know, magic and putting on shows for people, and he really was that kind of a person. So Phineas Quimby, who lived from 1802 to 1866, was an American mesmerist or hypnotist and a faith healer. And he had developed a belief system that included the idea that illness originates in the mind as a result of erroneous beliefs and that a mind open to God's wisdom could overcome any illness. And his basic premise was the trouble is in the mind for the body is only the house for the mind to dwell in. And therefore, if your mind had been deceived by some invisible enemy into a belief, you have put it into the form of a disease with or without your knowledge. Now, when he says with or without your knowledge, I think what he's implying is this is subconscious or unconscious. So you have these negative ideas and you become sick. Well, this is, you know, your mind affecting your body. And you may not even be aware of it. Uh, in, his, uh, in his book, Christ or Science, uh, he said, by my theory or truth, I come in contact with your enemy and restore you to health and happiness. And this I do partly mentally and partly by talking till I correct the wrong impression and establish the truth. And the truth is the cure. Now, it should be noted that when people made comparisons between Quimby's philosophy or method with Christian science, Quimby's son, who was a strong supporter of his father, said in Quimby's method of curing the sick, religion played no part. There were no prayers. There was no asking assistance from God or any other divinity. He cured by his wisdom. So although Quimby refers to God here and there, you know, certainly he's not thinking about God in the traditional Orthodox Christian sense. Um, you know, he's essentially made up his own system. Other researchers believe that while it's debatable whether or not the New Thought movement influenced Kenyon, there were other trends within the American religious scene that impacted Kenyon. According to Kenyon biographer Joe McIntyre, Kenyon's development of his positive confession teaching came primarily from the teachings of the holiness movement, the faith cure, and higher life movements that were popular in the U.S. during his lifetime. So it wasn't only these way out in left field, esoteric, you know, new age type people pursuing this. There were a lot of Christian groups that were 
saying, you can be healed. We can lay hands on you and pray for you, and the Lord will heal you. And certainly that's Orthodox Christian belief drawn from Scripture. Um, And so what you're going to begin to see is um, it becomes difficult, at least in some respects, to, to separate out the Christian elements from other elements that may not be truly Christian, maybe coming from a different place. So, for example, in 1884, an American preacher named Russell Kelso Carter wrote a book titled The Atonement for Sin and Sickness. Carter wrote, I only prayed, O Lord, make me sure of the truth, and I will confess it. I have nothing to do with consequences. That is thy part. And again, Jesus has the keeping part, I have the believing and confessing. Notice this emphasis on confessing. I'm, I'm going to pray and then confess. What am I going to confess? That I'm healed. Some of Quin, Quinby's methods were adopted by John Alexander Dowie, a controversial Australian Christian faith healer who traveled to the U.S. from Australia in the 1880s. He was, he was a real charlatan, Dowie was. If you read up on him, he was, he was way off the charts. Although he claimed to be a Christian, and many people believed he was, Dowie advocated total reliance on divine healing and was against the use of all forms of medicine. So here's, you know, we're seeing this. Here's an area where people can trend over into this belief so strongly that they simply say, If you're sick, you don't need medicine, and you shouldn't take it because that betrays the fact that you really don't believe, right? Sorry. Um, So um, Kenyon's writings influenced a man uh, by the name of Kenneth Hagen Sr. Sometimes he's referred to as Kenneth E, middle initial E, Hagen. His son, who has maintained his ministry, Um, His name is Kenneth Hagen, too, but different middle initial. Um, But sometimes people refer to them as senior and junior. So if you see Kenneth Hagen Sr., Kenneth Hagen Jr., it's the same guy as Kenneth E. Hagen and his son. Uh, He was born August 20th in 1917 in McKinney, Texas, with a deformed heart and what was believed to, to be an incurable blood disease. According to his testimony, Hagen was paralyzed and bedridden at the age of 15, and at age 16, he died three times and saw hell each time. After the third death, he repented and asked God to heal him, but he remained paralyzed after his conversion. On August 8, uh, 1934, he says he was raised from his deathbed by a revelation of faith in God's word after reading Mark eleven twenty three through 24. And he was also healed of his paralysis and never struggled with walking again. And he began preaching and pastoring in his late teens and early 20s, beginning as a Southern Baptist. In 1937, he became an Assemblies of God minister. And over the next 12 years, he pastored five Assemblies of God churches in Texas. He began an itinerant ministry in 1950 as a Bible teacher and evangelist after receiving what he believed was an appearance of Jesus. Now, if you remember from uh, previous talks, um, you know, this is at the same time the Voice of Healing Revival 
uh, is being, the magazine is being published by Gordon Lindsay. And there's a lot of other people involved with this voice of healing revival going on in the United States, uh, who interestingly, uh, a lot of them were centered in Texas and Oklahoma and other parts of the Midwest. Um, and remember, we talked about Oral Roberts and T.L. Osborne. And again, Gordon Lindsay, who was doing a lot of um, magazine and book publishing for the Voice of Healing Revival. So Hagen got uh, involved with this group. He also became a member of the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International, which had been established in 1951. And that group went on to become a very popular and widespread group that pastors and lay people were uh, heavily involved with, um, and it's Pentecostal largely. On January 23rd, 1963, he formed the Kenneth E. Hagen Evangelistic Association, now Kenneth Hagen Ministries in Garland, Texas. And in September of 66, uh, they moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma in a space previously uh, used by T.L. Osborne, again, another faith, faith teacher. He started selling his sermons on reel-to-reel -reel tape in 1966. Now, for a lot of you in the audience, what is reel-to-reel -reel tape? <laughs> Some people have an idea. Maybe you've seen a picture. <laughs> they had, used to have these big things called tape decks. Um, this was before, you know, miniaturization and all the cool things we have today. And uh, uh, they had this magnetic tape. You know, if you've ever seen a cassette tape, it, you know, it's similar to reel-to-reel -to -reel tape. And uh, it was too big... Uh, spindles or spools of tape, and that's how they recorded their message. And of course, um, you know, by the, I would say, uh, by the time Greg and I were doing campus ministry in the 80s, um, you know, reel-to-reel -reel tape had been superseded by the cassette tape. And if there's one technology that the charismatic movement launched on, it was cassette tape. You could buy tapes from any popular Bible teacher uh, through Christian bookstores that were, you know, believe it or not, there was a time when Christian bookstores were not, uh, there were not very many of them, and, uh, but the charismatic movement launched the Christian bookstore. Of course, nowadays with how our society has changed so much, all of, most of that, I shouldn't say all, but most of that has gone online. I don't even know if there's any Christian bookstores in existence in the Dayton area anymore. Uh, there used to be um, a Christian bookstore over uh, by the mall at Fairfield Commons, but that shut down a number of years ago. Um, but in any event, um, so uh, this idea of I'm going to tape my messages and I'm going to sell the tapes. And of course that quickly transformed into cassette tapes. And cassette tapes are much smaller and the device you play them on is much smaller. And, uh, you know, it was an easy thing, easy transition, uh, but the use of technology. So also in November of 66, um, he began teaching on the radio, on uh, radio station KSKY out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, in 1974, Hagen opened Rama Bible Training College in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Over the years, Rama has established training centers in Austria, Brazil, Colombia, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy, Mexico, Peru, 
Romania, Greece, Singapore, South Africa, the South Pacific, Thailand, Nigeria, Zambia, Egypt, and the Philippines. So this is global. Uh, this has become a huge ministry. It was huge, you know, in the 70s, and it's still huge. The ministry base for Hagen and his son, Kenneth Hagen Jr., uh, who took over his father's ministry after his death, is Rama Bible Church in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Through publication of books and periodicals, radio and television broadcasts, the Hagen's ministry has influenced many, many American Pentecostals and Charismatics and many Christians throughout the world. For uh, Kenneth Hagen Sr., Mark 11, 23 through 24, defined his ministry and, his, and was his most frequently quoted verse. For verily, and this is out of the King James, although I forgot to reference that, I say unto you that whatso, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Other word of faith teachers have picked up the last part of the scripture passage and shortened it to, whatever you want, believe you have received, and you shall have it. Another well-known and popular word of faith teacher and minister is Kenneth Copeland. Anybody heard of Kenneth Copeland? He might be better known to a younger audience. Uh, he's still alive. Um, Copeland was born on December 6, 1936 in Lubbock, Texas. He was raised near a U.S. Air Force base, and that inspired him to become an airplane pilot. He beca became a Christian in 1962. He was a pilot for Oral Roberts Ministries in the 60s. When Copeland was 30 years old, he enrolled in Oral Roberts University in Tulsa in the fall of 67, and later he studied under Kenneth Hagen Sr. at Rama Bible Training Center and Rama Bible Church in Oklahoma, and he began his own ministry in the 70s, and in 1979, Believer's Voice of Victory first appeared on television. Headquartered in Newark, Texas, it has international offices in Australia, Africa, Canada, Europe, and the Ukraine. So uh, Kenneth Copeland has basically an international ministry as well. Although Copeland started a church in 86 called Eagle Mountain International Church in Texas, he did not limit his ministry to pastoring a local church. Instead, he pioneered the televangelist model of Christian ministry. And not, surprising, not surprisingly, uh, this ministry model led to large inflows of cash from supporters, and he became very wealthy personally, and his ministry became very wealthy. Um, he also managed to put together a fleet of aircraft uh, for his ministry. Now, important themes in Copeland's preaching involve the prosperity gospel and physical healing. And Copeland has written that parishioners will get a hundredfold return on their investment uh, through giving to God. <clears throat> 
So, you know, you can begin to see there's this idea of I'm going to quantify what kind of benefit you're going to get when you give to God, or in other words, give to my ministry. <clears throat> Since 1967, Copeland's ministry has held three to six day conventions across the United States, and Kenneth Copeland Ministries still holds an annual Southwest Believers Convention in Copeland's hometown of Fort Worth, Texas during the first week of every August. Kenneth and his wife, Gloria Copeland, also preach and minister at other conventions and conferences throughout the world. And these events stream live on Copeland's website, kcm.org, as well as being shown on Christian television stations such as God TV and the Daystar Television Network. Uh, and KCM also owns various business class private jets. And there's that you know, love of flying that Copeland has. And uh, the ministry uses it for managing international operations of the ministry and for doing relief work during natural disasters. However, due to the large amount of financial wealth and assets that the ministry owes, owns, the government, the U.S. government, especially the IRS, has scrutinized the operations of the ministry to ensure that the Copelands, their family members, and other highly compensated employees are not using the ministry's assets to personally enrich themselves without paying taxes on their compensation. So you may have heard in the news that, um, you know, sometimes these ministries come under scrutiny. Joyce Meyer has been audited uh, more than once by the IRS, I believe. And um, so a number of these ministries have become quite wealthy uh, because they do, you know, the, the flip side of the, the faith message or the word of faith, it naturally lends itself to an idea of prosperity and the prosperity gospel that they preach. Copeland's ministries and others like it, such as Benny Hinn, Bill Winston, Charles Capps, Charles Neiman, Creflo Dollar, Fred Price, Hobart Freeman, Jerry Saville, Joe Joel Osteen, John Avanzini, Joyce Meyer, Juanita Bynum, Marilyn Hickey, Paul and Jan Crouch, Randy and Paula White, although they're no longer married, and Jan Crouch is deceased. Uh, so some of these folks are a little older, and you may not recognize the names. Robert Tilton, Rodney Howard Brown, and T.D. Jakes. There's a big um, prosperity uh, health and wellness preacher out of Columbus. Uh, I don't know how big his ministry is. He's been around for years. His name is Rod Parsley, uh, but you may have heard of him, but he's out of Columbus. <clears throat> this long list of prosperity and word of faith gospel preachers, and there's more that I didn't list, all of whom have global outreaches through television, radio, and the internet, show that, if nothing else, this gospel is lucrative for those who espouse it. It proves to be a popular model for ministry today and is often copied by pastors of local churches who are hoping to fill their buildings with attenders as well as their offering plates with money. But we have to ask, are the prosperity and word of faith messages correct biblically? 
and theologically? And do they give Christians the godly instruction that they need? To answer these questions, we can go back to the teachings of E.W. Kenyon, who was fond of saying, what I confess, I possess. And interestingly, I think this came from my mother-in-law, I'm not totally sure, but I found on our bookshelves at home a copy of one of his books in his presence. Again, not all of it's bad. It reads like a devotional. You could use it as a devotional. But it does have very much of this idea of what I confess I possess. You know, name it and claim it. Um, Kenneth Hagin used a four-part formula. He claimed to have received this from Jesus. Say it, do it, receive it, tell it. One central idea of the Word of Faith mess, uh, movement is confession brings possession. The emphasis is not on the gospel so much as on a transactional idea of God will give me what I want if I believe and confess and speak it into existence. And I would say that largely the Word of Faith message is not really an orthodox Christian message. Repenting from sin, believing in the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, trusting in him for salvation, and being born again often take a backseat to messages about claiming your kingdom rights as a child of God. What rights do you have? According to the faith message preachers, you have the right to healing and health for your whole life, financial prosperity, and the solution for every problem in life. There is a subtle shift in emphasis from living your life for Christ and serving him to what you want and need, which often becomes translated into material prosperity. It should be noted that there is a lot of good mixed in with ideas that shift the focus from glorifying the Lord to meeting human needs and ultimately becoming human focused. Word of Faith preachers continually exhort their followers to get into the scriptures. Of course, that's a very good thing. But I would say you need to get into all of the scriptures. Too often, they are taking proof texts and not encouraging serious Bible study, comprehensive Bible study. Um, sometimes it's what they believe you will get out of the scriptures that is sometimes questionable. And of course, anybody studying scripture needs some, something or someone to guide them accurately. You can take a lot of scripture and you can twist it and twist it and turn it into something really weird. So the idea is I should get into the scriptures so that I learn more about the Lord, not so that I can get more proof text to prove that what I confess I will receive. So there's a, a very different kind of emphasis. As I read the Bible with an emphasis on knowing the Lord, learning how he works with and through human beings, how he leads and guides his people, the emphasis is not on trying to figure out what I am going to get out of this. Now, here we come to an ironic thing, because Christianity clearly benefits us, right? Amen. No question. Becoming a Christian, being born again, coming out of death into life, living 
uh, life with Christ, learning the Bible, learning his word, learning all that he has for me. But it's not just all about me. It isn't just all about what's in it for me. See, there's, again, that difference in emphasis. Um, and I think sometimes it, it's hard for people to understand the goal of the, the, what is the end goal of the Christian life? It's to know the Lord. The Westminster Confession guides us in this regard. To know the Lord, to enjoy him forever, uh, to be with him forever. It's not having more stuff. It's not having more money. Now, along the way, he might give you a lot of stuff and a lot of money, but that's not the end goal. My Christian life should be, who is God? I need to know who he is. I need to know what he is like. I need to understand how he works through human history. What is his purpose for me as an individual? But also, what is his purpose for his people, the church? That's important, too. It's not just all about me. So as I grow in my knowledge of the Lord, I begin to understand that his purpose for me is good. But I also come to understand that knowing the Lord and following him may involve sacrifice, difficulty, pain, and worst of the worst, suffering. The lives of the saints in the Bible clearly bear witness to this. And of course, Jesus himself, the Son of God, left the glory of heaven to come to earth to be born as a man and live the life of a man in a time and place with few material comforts. Jesus stated, the foxes have holes and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Will the faith preachers preach that verse to us? I doubt it. I can imagine a word of faith preacher, had he been standing in the crowd around Jesus, listening to this statement, would have rebuked the Lord for his lack of faith. But what is the ultimate purpose of having faith and growing in faith? Is it to have more health and wealth and for our own blessing? Or is it for doing the will of God, serving and obeying him, and fulfilling the purpose and work he has called us to do? Again, as individuals and also as the church. Earlier I stated, as I grow in my knowledge of the Lord, I begin to understand that his purpose for me is good. But it doesn't guarantee a smooth path in life or a bed of roses. And we could restate this as, as I grow in my faith, I begin to understand that his purpose for me is good. So faith is not faith all by itself, almost as something independent of its object. You can't remove your faith in God from God himself. If you do that, you're beginning to tread in a, I would say, a dangerous direction. Faith, in order to be true biblical faith, must always have as its object the Lord himself. Otherwise, all I really have is mind over matter. The word of faith preachers have actually a very distorted view of faith. On Kenneth Copeland's website, kcm.org, Copeland has a section called Real Help with different subjects such as finances, relationships, and so on. Under faith, there's the following statement. Faith is a powerful force, and it can turn any situation around. 
learn what faith is and how to use it today. But biblical faith is not a force. It is the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1, 1, that comes from God. If it's the evidence of, not, of things not seen, what are those things that we don't see? God has to reveal them to us, and only God, because we can't see them. So it must come from somewhere. Is it going to come from God or some other source? Of course, as Christians, we want our faith, our knowledge, to come from God himself. The final paragraph on the faith section of Copeland's website states that your success as a Christian lies in your willingness and ability to use your faith to apply God's word in your life. When you do, your faith will change everything. Now, you notice I've italicized you and your here. That's not on the website. I added that. But again, there's this idea that it's very individualistic because, after all, this is a website. It's not a church's website. It's a ministry's website, a ministry that preaches to thousands of people all over the world. And it's not a church, so the emphasis is on the individual and how you can experience success in your Christian life. Now, looking at it from a cultural context, this statement reveals how American, very American, the Word of Faith movement is. There is a great deal of American exceptionalism, optimism, and emphasis on success in this message. It's not surprising that with the American emphasis on material prosperity and the definition of success revolving around material prosperity, social advancement, and increase in social status, that the American Christian message would involve these ideas all too often. It doesn't always. Not all preachers of the gospel who come from the United States and go to other parts of the world preach these things. However, we recognize that these ministries, and we've only outlined two of them in detail, uh, Hagen's and Copeland's, the, this message is being spread all over the world. How does this impact people living in poor countries, in countries where they don't simply have a lot of resources available to them? I, what, what, it, what does the success even mean? You know, we've uh, had we've invited Steve Shepard from Church Planning International. He's come and done presentations for us. He's shown us uh, pictures from places like Uganda, where people have almost nothing, and sometimes they literally have nothing. How is this kind of message going to help people like that? They need the gospel as well as needing material things and many other things. Unfortunately, this message has become very popular in developing countries and has had some negative impacts there. Ultimately, the word of faith message begins to sound like a lot of self-help or motivational messages and not really the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of, <clears throat> excuse me, the word of faith preachers <clears throat> also utilize technology in a way that ultimately diminishes the Christian church. Their followers really don't need to be a part of a local church. 
as their message can be consumed through radio, TV, internet streaming, websites, books, and other publications. You don't need to be a part of a local church to be saturated with Word of Faith messages, and you can donate to those ministries electronically, and you don't need to be concerned with supporting your local church financially. You can choose to be a Lone Ranger Christian, and you need never worry about someone confronting you about sin in your life, bad habit patterns, and so on. So I can imagine, for example, somebody who is a consumer of the Word of Faith message continually having financial problems. Why does that person have financial problems? Year after year after year, well, maybe they have a gambling addiction. But nobody's going to confront that on, confront that with them. They're not going to say, hey, did you ever think your gambling addiction might be the reason you've got financial problems? Maybe your problems that you're concerned with, that you want prayer for, and you want to be blessed by God financially, that's just a side issue that is a result of a much deeper problem in your life. But nobody's ever going to confront you. you know, Kenneth Copeland isn't going to call you up and say, brother, you need deliverance from gambling addiction. Now, he might say it in, you know, over the airwaves. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, essentially, you as an individual are the arbiter, the decision maker of what and how much content you consume, and thus the ultimate determiner of how Christian you want to be. And ultimately, the focus and methods of the Word of Faith message diminish the proclamation of the full gospel of Jesus Christ and diminish the local church while helping to line the pockets of the Word of Faith preachers. Very American and very transactional. Perhaps the best rebuke to the Word of Faith preachers is provided to us by the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, verse 17. You see, we are not like the many hucksters, uh, some manuscripts read, the rest of the hucksters, who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. So even in Paul's day, you, there were people who were trying to just peddle a message um, you know, that would sound good to the people who heard it, it would tickle their ears, so to speak. A verse that helps remind us of the purpose of our Christian walk is 1 Timothy 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. It isn't measured by the amount of possessions we have. It isn't measured by the balance in, uh, in our bank account. It's things that God works within our lives, not material possessions, and not from outward manifestations of having a lot of faith, such as, I'm not sick. Um, this pretty much concludes what I uh, wanted to share about the Word of Faith teachers. Um, if you want... 
a much, now, you know, I am somewhat critical of them, as you can tell. If you want an even more critical book, you can get A Different Gospel by D.R. McConnell. Uh, it's not a short read. It's a very good book. Uh, again, not a short read, but um, it really lays into all of this. Um, I didn't really bring out the fact that uh, Kenneth Hagin actually plagiarized most of his stuff from E.W. Kenyon. And there was, uh, when it came to light that he had done that, you know, a number of prominent uh, ministers confronted him about that. Um, and first he was like, I didn't plagiarize, I didn't plagiarize. And then, you know, it, there was all kinds of obfuscation. But basically, he took an awful lot of stuff uh, from E.W. Kenyon. Other people have taken Kenyon's work and said they've de-emphasized what could be considered word of faith and simply said um, this is just a, a Bible teacher, a man who wrote a lot of devotional books. Here's some of the books. Um, <clears throat> but again, if you read some of his books, um, which I don't really recommend, but if you, you know, if you look at samples from them, you can see that there's just some places where it kind of goes off the rails. It's, you know, essentially the idea of confession brings possession. Christianity cannot be reduced to simple little three-word sentences like that. I mean, that's not Christianity. There's a lot more to the Christian faith. Um, and, you know, look at all the people through history, the saints, starting with the early church, Jesus himself, the disciples. They committed their lives to the Lord, to serving his purposes. They suffered much. They endured much sacrifice. They weren't rich. <laughs> um, this idea, you know, now, that isn't to say that God doesn't want to bless people with material, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> prosperity. But again, that's not the end goal. The end goal is not having a lot of stuff. <coughs> we don't live like people in the world who say things like, he who dies with the most toys wins, or something like that. That's not what our Christian life is about. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, here's just a few... <coughs> Uh, some of the books by Hagen and Copeland, you can find these on their websites. Again, I don't really recommend these. Again, there are some good things in some of the books. There are some, um, some things are very encouraging. Uh, for people who have a lot of negative self-talk going on in their head, some of the messages are helpful. Um, but a lot of the emphasis, again, is on um, you know, name it and claim it. Um, confession brings possession. Believe God. Brother, if you're sick, that must be because you just don't have enough faith. And when people, you know, when people struggle, when they go through trials, people who are into this kind of a message will turn to them and say, brother, just, you know, you got to exercise your faith. You know, you just don't, you need to get in the word and Exercise your faith and trust God. Um, 
That isn't the answer to all of life's struggles. <coughs> Excuse me. And some people struggle in their Christian life. Some people aren't always successful. Some people suffer failure. So anyway, I hope you um, maybe know a little bit more about these teachers than you did before we started. Um, again, you can look at some of this material. I don't recommend delving into it too deeply. There's way better things you can do with your time. Amen. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. Thanks for your attention. <laughs>